Okay. Glad you're here. We'll jump in. So, so uh, we just finished with Pesach, and uh, I just want to do a, a few thoughts to recap on Pesach, and then we'll go forward. Uh, I actually went back to the, the Catskill Mountains um, this year and uh, had some further adventures there, which was, which was a lot of fun. But um, one of the highlights of my, uh, of my trip there, um, there's a, a Rabbi Finkel, who's a big scholar and uh, was uh, a student of um, Rav Soloveitchik's, and I, I had the opportunity to hear him speak. On, uh, he, he selected as the subject of, his, of one of his talks, my, maybe my, one of my favorites, certainly, Sukkim of the Torah, which is um, it's actually to be found in Parsha's Bohm. It's... Um, Chapter 12, verse uh, 42. And um, it uses the phrase, it's Leil uh, Shimurim, which means this, uh, this night of waiting, this night of anticipation. And this word Shimurim is only used twice in the entire Torah. And amazingly, it's used, both of those times that it's used, it's used in the exact same Pasuk. So it's in one verse, this word Shimurim appears two times, and that's it for the entire Torah. So that's, so it's a very special word. And let me read it to you um, the way it's translated here by the art scroll. It says, it is a night of anticipation. Shamor has the, the root of the word shamor is shamor, which means to guard. So um, it's, it's translated as anticipation, but that's, that's already giving away an aspect of its inner meaning. By the way, um, but technically speaking, it would be a night of guarding. That might be a, a more direct way of translating it. It is a night of anticipation for Hashem to take them out of the land of Egypt. This was the night for Hashem, a protection for all the children of Israel for their generations. So, um, so, so I want to get into this a little bit more. Um, we touched on one point. Let me just make this before we go on. This idea of it being translated as a night of anticipation, whereas perhaps the more literal translation would be a night of guarding. Um, this will give you just an insight of what it means to translate things in general. Um, someone said to me one time something that's good to know, which is that every translation is a commentary. And, and because when you, when you translate a word, you, you are, um, you are, your, your whole uh, mission is to communicate what the essence of that word is. Now, now, sometimes to communicate something literally uh, would be totally to miss the, the ability to communicate. You know, sometimes, in, like to give you, not that I need to give you an example, but to give you a very sort of basic, uh, maybe too basic example, in, in, in street slang, at, at one point in, in American history, I, I don't know if it's still the case, bad meant good, Right? He's bad, right? That meant he's good, right? You want it to be bad. Bad meant good. But can you imagine if you're translating a text and you wrote, for, for the translation of bad, you wrote bad? No one would know what you're talking about. You would have to write good as the translation. So here you see, now, now, um, now you see that since you want to, tra- you want to communicate the, the inner essence of something, you have a whole variety of choices. Now, all of a sudden, that becomes a very subjective endeavor, because that's now your personality now is now interfacing between the actual text itself and what will be, quote unquote, the translation. So you see now, now all of a sudden, it's not really a translation anymore, but it's a commentary because you are investing your own set of choices and your own personality in terms of what you're going to write down as the meaning of that word. Okay, so now they've done a very nice job here by translating the word shimurim as anticipation. As, as you'll see in a moment, that's going to get into the inner essence of what's being talked about over here. Because that's what ideally you want from the translator to give you the real essence of, of what the text is saying, not just the literal translation, which, which might be superficially correct, but not communicate the full meaning. Okay. So, let's get back to the, the Pasuk. So, you know, let me just digress for one moment. I, maybe, maybe, and I'm sure it's all positively meant, 
Um, this is all, I'm sure, positively meant, and uh, so I'm really not trying to to bash anyone. But but uh, but while we're on the subject, the Torah itself, the Chumash itself, comes with an inner translation. That inner translation of the Torah is called the Talmud. That's what the Talmud is. And just to review just our history, this is very basic history, but somehow widely unknown. When Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah at Mount Sinai, he got the Chumash, the five books, delivered word by word from God. He wrote them down word by word. Okay. God also explained what the words meant as he was giving him the Torah. That's, that later becomes known as the Talmud, or the oral tradition. But that, God's own explanation of what the Torah meant was given at Mount Sinai as well. Now that oral tradition was kept uncodified for many, 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 many generations. But, lest you think, because it's very expansive and it's very, very elaborate, lest you think that that was all kind of just memorized, because it's vast amounts of information, notes were taken, very detailed notes were taken, but they were never codified and published. At a certain point, approximately 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years to 1,500 years ago, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Yehuda the Prince, also known as Rebbe, decided that this, this codification was started to, it started to be lost. It was being forgotten and it was being scattered. So he brought it all together and he published it as the Mishnah. So the oral, this oral tradition, God's own explanation of the Torah itself, of the inner essence of the Torah, becomes published as the Mishnah in very terse language. That gets fleshed out by later rabbis who also add stories of contemporary times, this is going back, but contemporary times to illustrate the meaning of what the Mishnah was and what the oral law was, that then becomes the, the fleshing out of the Mishnah becomes the Gomorrah. Okay? Now the Gomorrah takes about 500 years to be finished. Alright? The fleshing out of the Mishnah. So have you ever heard of a book that took... 500 years to be finished. I mean, remember, how vast is the Talmud? If you learn it a page a day, it takes seven years. All right, now, now that becomes the Talmud. And then we have later commentary, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, everything like that, further explaining what the Talmud means. But all of this is going back to Mount Sinai, which is, Hashem's own explanation of what the Torah means itself, okay? So when we talk about translations, how can we know what a particular word means? Well, if it's a key word, we can turn to God, and God, God himself explains it, okay? Now, why, why, why am I bringing this up? There's a book that was just recently published. It was reviewed in the New York Times Book Review a few weeks ago. Someone, again, I'm sure a very well-intentioned person, decided he's going to read the, the Chumash, the, the five books, and he's just going to read it straight through and comment on it in, like a blogger might. And it's, I mean, I just read the review, but it's, it's, it's a hatchet job on the Torah. It, it, misses, it misses, you know, as an intellectual exercise, uh, I'm sure it's very interesting, what an intelligent person is reacting to, but he's not reacting to the Torah itself. So, because, because the explanation of the events, as we understand them, are not being given over accurately. So what he's commenting on is something that isn't actually there. So, so I'm sure, unfortunately, many people are going to be misled, and many, many negative stereotypes, which are all based on a completely superficial understanding of what the Torah is, are going to be reinforced. And it's very, it's very unfortunate, really. Um, 
So, so thank God. Thank God we have, we have the ability to look more deeply into what the Torah itself is saying. Uh, and that will guide us. So this word, this Pasuk, Leil Shemurim, this idea of a night of guarding or a night of watching. Now, Shemurim, this is the first thing that I heard from Rabbi Finkel, who has been privileged to <clears throat> have access through a very close relationship that he has with the Vatican <clears throat> to see ancient Jewish texts that have not been published or disseminated at all. Um, remember, when um, Rome vanquished the base Hamigdash, the second base Hamigdash, the treasures of the base Hamigdash were absorbed into Rome. Rome becomes the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is Catholicism, which becomes the Vatican. So many, 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 many great Jewish treasures are held by the Vatican, including, some say, the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash itself. So that's never been proven, but it's widely speculated on that in their catacombs, by the way, an odd piece of information that I have that I'll share with you, apparently the Vatican has the widest collection of pornography in the world. Because this is stuff over the centuries that has been confiscated. And I guess the stuff that they didn't burn or destroy has been filed. So, so somewhere in the catacombs, apparently, I read that somewhere. They, they have that as well. But Lahavdil and Lahavdalas, there is an opinion that they also have the, the, the vessels of the, or some of the vessels of the Beis Amigdash. One of the, one of the arguments or proofs, if you will, that's, that's offered for, for that side, for that opinion, is that if you look in Rome, there's a, um, a, 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 a relief carved into stone of the, vanquish, of the vanquishing of the Jewish people, of the Beis Amigdash, and you see there's a Roman soldier who over his shoulder has the menorah. There's a giant menorah. You can see it. It's in Rome today. You can, you can look. There are pictures of this. It's, it's right there. It's literally carved in stone. So, so there you see uh, one of the main pieces of evidence that people who believe this to be the case point to. Um, anyway, Rabbi Finkel has access to the, the uh, a, he calls it the, the Targum Yerushalmi, which is, he says, um, a thousand years old or older, and um, and he says that this is what the Targum Yonasan is actually based on, and, uh, which is a very ancient commentary. And so here is a very ancient explanation of this Pasuk. So this is like privileged information, because he was told that he's not allowed to publish these things, that he could have access to these texts, but he's not allowed to publish what they say or translations or anything like this. So this is a rare piece of information on one of the key psukim, of the Torah. So this is something to be excited about, or I was excited about it anyway. So again, let me read the Pasuk to you, because you have to understand this. Let me just give you a little more context, so when I reread the Pasuk for you, you can appreciate what it's saying. There is essentially, this is my own words and my own description, but I, I believe that this is a accurate um, giving over. Again, uh, don't take this too literally, but just understand the spirit of this. There is, a, there is a, an opening in this time-space continuum. This opening is the 15th of the month of Nisan. This is what is called the Leil Shemurim, this night of watching. It's a night of miracles throughout Jewish history. In fact, if you look at the Haggadah, there's a song at the end which talks about all the incredible things, all the miracles that have happened at midnight over the, over the centuries. It's the miracle night of, of the world, is the 15th of Nisan. There's no, way, there's no other way to describe it. Remember, Nisan, the name of the Jewish month, means miracles. It has the word nes in it, which means miracles. The 15th is the full moon. So you have this, the fullness of this representation, the fullness of this energy of miracles is the 15th of, of Nisan. And many amazing things have happened 
on the 15th of Nisan, and we're going to get into them in a moment, or some of them anyway. But this is the night that we were freed from, uh, from Egypt. And it has this messianic quality to it, this, this, this quality of just being beyond the bounds of, of nature. Um, so, so, so this is, this is really an example of when you need a teacher, okay? Because Leo Shimurim, a night of watching. Okay, so you can get into the poetry of it, a night of watching, but they're very, remember, the Torah is the blueprint of reality. God looked into the Torah and then he made the universe. So sometimes there are things that are just sort of like invitations to darshan and to interpret and everything like that. And those interpretations, you know, as long as they adhere to the basic parameters of Jewish thought, are all good, are all good. However, oftentimes they also have a real technical basis to them where they're making specific delineations. And unless you have someone who's really knowledgeable and who's in touch with the, with the actual, you know, the engineering of reality, if you will, you know, unless he's got access to the actual blueprints, you're not going to get the actual super detailed shot, like literal definition of what it's talking about. So now this is going to present that level. Okay, so that's why this is so special. Okay, so again, Leil Shemurim is mentioned twice in this Pasuk. It's the only time that that word is used in the entire Torah. Both times that word is used in this one, this one verse. So Shemurim is plural. So that means, plural means, in this case, according to this Targum Yerushami, means two. And since Shemurim is used twice, that means, over history... We're talking about four main nights of watching. All right? Now, just for a moment, before we even get to what they are, love the fact that it's been defined that way. Just love the fact that you've got that level of articulation in terms of looking and analyzing this verse. That in itself is a prize. The fact that we're talking about four particular nights. Okay? What is the first night? The first night is when God was alone on the first day of creation. And it's talking about the original light. Okay? So, so now we have to just backtrack one moment. And this is, this is something that we have to really hold on to. Because, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps, there are many ways to, to describe, you know, human attitudes and consciousness and all the rest. Maybe, maybe one simple division, but with very profound side effects, is those of us who are backward-looking and those of us who are forward-looking. And by backward, I don't mean um, with its negative connotations like primitive or closed-minded or something like this. That's not what I'm talking about. A lot of us walk through life like... We walk through life like this. <laughs> In other words, we're, we're just understanding our entire life based on yesterday and based on the day before yesterday and based who I was when I was 16 and based who I was when I was 10. And I live with my understanding of myself and I live with my understanding of the world just based on exclusively my previous experiences with reality, with God, with people. That is a large chunk of humanity who goes through life like this. There is another, another way to look at life, which is what's ahead, what's coming. Many of us are too afraid to do that. Or it doesn't even occur to us to do that, that there is any other way to go through life. Because how can I base my life on something that's ahead of me when I don't know what the future is? So, but, listen to the trap that we fall into. But, but if we are backward looking, 
We are answering that question. We are saying, I understand what the future is. The future is the same as the past. So either way, we're answering the question of what the future is. Either we're going to be honest and we don't know, and we can be forward-thinking and optimistic, or we can just apply the past to the future and say that's all there is. But either way, we're answering the same question. So now, now that we know that we're answering that question either way, how do you want to answer the question? You're in control of your life. How do you choose to answer the question? And of course, anyone who wants to be intellectually honest knows that weird stuff happens every single day. Surprising stuff happens every single day. And we don't know what's coming next. And if we really don't know what's coming next, then we have to say to ourselves, how can I continue to find my life the future of my life based on what's happened in the past if surprises are happening all the time. Therefore, the past can't serve as a proper model for the future. Right? It's just very logical. Okay, so then what does the future hold? All right, so now let's get back to the Pasuk. <laughs> so what this Pasuk is saying, this verse in the Torah is saying something amazing. Now, I just started with the first night. The first night, but let's get back to the, this, this word Shimurim, okay? This night of guarding, that's again the more literal level, or the, the real essence of the word, which is more correct, this night of anticipation. Well, when God was just alone, the first day of creation, remember, in the Torah, when it, uh, when it, when it speaks about and describes the initial days of creation, the first day is described in surprising grammatical terms, Yom Echad. And then you have Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi. If you get into Hebrew grammar a little bit, the first one should be Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi. In other words, the first day, the second day, the third day. That would be consistent. But it doesn't say that. It says Yom Echad, which means one day. Then Yom Sheni, the second day. Then the third day, then the fourth day. Do, do you hear how grammatically that doesn't sync? Day one, second day. Right? Third day. Fourth, it should be first day, second day, third day. Okay. So, so the commentators all jump on this. What is this idea of Yom Echad? Right? So they say this is the day when it was just God was alone. This is before creation. It was just God. Okay? So that's intense. And it's also identified, by the way, with Yom Kippur, which is a very beautiful notion. Um, because if you look at the word, um, if you look at the word, uh, what is it? Is it, yeah, Shana. Right? And Sutton. You see that, uh, I can't do the math for you this second, but basically, there's one day, Hasatan, Hasatan, is what? Gematria 305, 305, 355, and uh, 9. What's 350, 355 and 9? 364. Right, good. 364. Hasatan the Satan, in English translated as Satan, of course we know God is one, there aren't two powers. Evil works for good. Meaning, when a negative impulse comes to you, it wants you to say no. Right? As we always learn. It doesn't want you to say yes. This is how evil works for good. They're not two separate powers wrestling with each other. There's only one power. Just God. Hasatan is 364. There are 365 days in the year. That means that there's one day that's free of the Satan, right? Which is what? Yom Kippur. Yom Echad. One day. So that first day of creation is free of any negative impulse because it's just God alone. Does everyone hear? And that's why it's identified with Yom Kippur. But if you think about this now with what we're about to say, that it's also a day of anticipation. In other words... God is looking forward to the perfection of the world from the beginning of the world. 
We talk about it all of the time. It's the biggest theological question there is. And the answer is actually very straightforward. Has to be reviewed all of the time. If there is a God and he is all-powerful and he is good, how can it be that I see so much evil in the world? Why is the world so broken? That either means that God is imperfect or there is no God or there is a God and he's not good. Those are your options. All of them are incorrect. So then how do you reconcile the idea of an imperfect world with a God who is all-powerful and who is good? The answer is the world is still in the process of being perfected. And that's our job in this world to partner with God through the Torah, through the mitzvahs, to finish the world. We're still in the middle, right? It's what we always say. But you see it from another standpoint right now. The idea of this idea being the first, the first of the four nights of anticipation is the first day of creation itself, where God is anticipating the perfection of the world. He's looking forward. In other words, he didn't just make it and go away. He didn't just make it and go, this is finished, this is what it is. He made it and he's anticipating something, which is what? The completion of the world itself. The perfection of the world itself. A forward-looking view of the world. And you're going to see this forward-looking attitude throughout. Because that's where we're at. That's reality. That's the human condition. We're in the middle of something and we're looking forward toward the completion of this project. Which is, which is, which is everything. Okay? Okay, the second, and by the way, just another level, since we see three things combine, in a beautiful way, I think, Yom Echad, it's just God, Yom Kippur, and the beginning of this process of creating a perfect world, why is Yom Kippur also part of this anticipation? Because he understands we're going to make mistakes. And he's anticipating the fact that he's going to forgive us. Right? So at the very beginning, this idea of anticipating is a knowledge of our human frailties and the fact that we're not perfect. That's, in other words, that's incorporated from the very, very first day of creation. I mean, if you want to feel God's love on some level, you can tap into that. This notion that God knows. God, you made a mistake, Mazel tov. God knows that. He knew it before you were even created, that you were going to make a mistake. And not only that, but he already prepared Yom Kippur, forgiveness for you, from the very outset. You say, oh, but God doesn't forgive me. That's you talking. That's not God talking. So then why don't I feel it? Okay, so learn some more Torah, then you'll feel it. Okay, so what's the second night? The second of the Shemurims. The second night is the bris benabasarim between Hashem and Avraham Avinu. When Hashem makes this covenant with Avraham, where he basically chooses the Jewish people. This is, this is like the, 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 the moment of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. And, um, and uh, you know, it's this amazing thing where Abraham offers all these korbonos and he splits them in half. It's also referred to in English as the covenant of the halves. And uh, Abraham walks through them. It's a, it's a whole amazing thing. But... Again, you know, this half is sort of like this passageway between the, the Corbonos, this idea of this passageway also through time itself. And this was also the 15th of the month of Nisan. So again, Hashem is anticipating, and now he has his people Israel, right? The, the beginnings, the beginnings. Avraham Avinu is, is the DNA of the whole Jewish people, right? 
the beginnings of the whole Jewish people. That's the second night. Or the second example of Leil Shemurim. Then what's the third one? The third one is the taking out of the Jews themselves from Egypt. That was also the 15th of the night of Nisan. So now the Jewish people are emerging now as a great nation, not as an individual, but as a great nation. Also the 15th of Nisan. And now what is the final one? The final one will be the night of Mashiach. We haven't experienced the fourth. We've experienced three of the four, but not the fourth. And you know, anyone who's in touch with the Haggadah at all knows that four is like the key number of the Haggadah. Right? We've got the four cups of, excuse me, the four cups of wine that we drink. And we've got the four sons asking the questions. And of course, the name of Hashem is four letters. You know, it's, there's lots and lots of fours in the, in the Haggadah. But we've realized three of the four But what I'm trying to emphasize is this notion of this forward-looking thing, that the whole nature of God's interaction with the world is this forward-looking thing. Okay. Now, now how do we we respond to this? So, the Haggadah, on one level, plays with the whole notion of time. And um, the, the linearness or the lack of linearness of time. And that will give us a perspective of this fourth night and, and what our attitude as we go through life and as we become future directed. We look forward to tomorrow and the next day and the next day. How we're supposed to live. So... One of, the odd, uh, one of the odd constructs in the Haggadah is that we say Hallel, which is this, you know, these songs of thanks to God, and we take a break in the middle of Hallel in the Haggadah, and we eat dinner. Now, all of us who are familiar with the way prayer goes in Judaism knows we're big on praying, we're big on eating, but we're not, we don't do them simultaneously. <laughs> so the idea of just sort of like, okay, dinner break in the middle of Hallel is very unusual. It's very odd. And yet it's part of the Seder. It's part of the Seder. So the rabbis comment that the first half of Hallel, that Hallel is really being divided up into two parts. The first half of Hallel is thanking God for everything he's done up until now, particularly taking us out of Egypt, but everything. And the second half of Hallel is thanking God, now listen to my, I'm going to phrase this very carefully, thanking God for having brought Mashiach. Now wait a second. Mashiach is in here yet. And yet we're Thanking God for having brought Mashiach. Okay, so now this is really playing with time in a very surprising, interesting way. Now, in order to explain this better, let's go to another famous question, and this will allow us to get a better perspective on this. In the Haggadah, you can... um, If you want to talk about verses of us leaving Egypt, the more understandable place to extract the passages would be from, the, um, from Sefer Shmos, from the book of Exodus. You've got the whole narrative as it's happening in the present tense. And, and it's, very, it's very, very exciting the way it's written in Parshas Bo and Beshalach and everything like this. You've got it all kind of coming down. So you would think that, well, in the Haggadah, when we talk about leaving Egypt, surely that's where we're drawing the psukim from, the passages from. And the answer is, it's not from there. So that's odd. So where do we draw it from? So now listen to this. We draw it from, it's called the, um, the vidui, which is, is, is a, um, something that someone would recite when they brought 
the first fruits of their crop that they harvested in Israel to the Beis Hamikdash. And that's and then we say and then we recount the whole thing, which is which is what we read in the Haggadah, how you know about Lovin and the Aramean and all these all these things and and God saved us from Egypt and all the rest. Okay, so now again we're we're looking at how time gets twisted in terms of the Haggadah, okay, and in terms of what this tells us how we should live our lives. So follow me, okay. When this passage was given to the Jewish people, they were still in the desert. They were still in the desert. They hadn't gotten into Israel yet. And they were told, you're going to get into Israel. Just like we're told, Mashiach is going to come. See, there's a parallel here. The Jews were still in the desert. They're told, you're going to go to Israel. They're thinking, they're wandering around for a long time. Are we ever going to get to Israel? You're going to get to Israel, don't worry. Then, not only are you going to go to Israel, but you're going to get a piece of land. Everyone is told that, right, all of us have a portion in the world to come. Right? You say, well, what does that mean? Yeah, just like you were in the desert and you really did get to Israel and you really did get a piece of land, so there really is a heaven, there really is a Mashiach, there really is an Olam and you really do have a piece of real estate, you really do have a share there. Okay? So, not only that, but on that piece of real estate, you're actually going to plant trees. And those trees are really going to grow fruit. You know what that means? Cash. <laughs> cash and food. You're going to get... But I'm in the desert. Don't worry. You've got cash, land, and food ahead of you. And you know what you're going to do with that? You're going to take the first fruits, and you're going to bring them to the base of Mikdash. I mean, there's going to be a base of Mik- yeah. There's going to be a base of Mikdash, where God is going to be revealed in this amazing way. And then you're going to talk about all of the things that are going on now. <laughs> all right. So do you see how time is turning? They're in the present tense. You're wandering in the desert, and you're told all of these things that are going to happen when you get to Israel, and when you get to Israel. You're going to talk about all the things that you're doing now. So in the future, you're going to talk about the past. Which happens to be now, from the Jews' perspective in the desert. Now how about us at the Seder table? Just like we don't read the contemporary passages from Shmos and everything like that, but we read the passages that are going to take place in the future, looking back on the past, so too, we thank God for an event that hasn't happened yet. We're thanking God for bringing Mashiach, even though He isn't here yet. Now let's get deeper. Let's get deeper. Time is for us mortals. God exists outside of time. That means the past, the present, and the future is all before God because God exists within our realm, but He also transcends our realm and exists outside of time as well. That means from God's perspective, He's already brought Mashiach because God is in touch with future events. He's already brought them. So now, we have this unbelievable... Now, remember, there we are now, at the Seder table, on Leil Shemurim, on the 15th of Nisan, the full moon, the fullness of the month of miracles. This, like, opening, in terms of, like, the, the restricted, limited aspects of reality, like this porthole into the infinite. We're sitting there at the table outside of time, unbound by time, at the Seder table, thanking God from His perspective outside of time for an event that hasn't happened yet, but from God's perspective has happened yet, and is so guaranteed to us that we're thanking God already for it, even though we haven't experienced it yet. 
in movies, there's like often this moment where like the gritty general turns to the crowd and says, victory is certain. <laughs> that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Victory is certain. You know, there's a... If someone could bring me uh, that black art scroll, sitter, actually, the, maybe the one right in front of you. That would be great. I want to show you something in, uh, in the Tehillim, in the Psalms, that we say every day that expresses this exact attitude. It's from King David. And uh, it's, really, it's really something special. I hope that I can find it quickly. Um, actually, it might uh, be in the Pesuke de Zimmer of Shabbos. And uh, okay. Oh, here it is. Okay. So it is... uh, It says here, As for me, I trust in your kindness. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Hashem, for He dealt kindly with me. So now look how the time frame changes in this. As for me, I trust in your kindness. That means I want something, but I haven't gotten it yet. Right? And now, but, now listen to this next phrase. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Hashem, for He dealt kindly with me. In other words, you're so certain that God is going to answer your prayer, that you're already happy now as though your prayer has been answered. That's what we've been talking about. (laughs) This is, I'll tell you right now, this is um, Psalm number 13, verse 6. Okay? As for me, I trust in your kindness. Hasn't happened yet. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I'm already happy. I will sing to Hashem. I'm rejoicing, for He dealt kindly with me. I'm already happy like my prayer has been answered before it's been answered. This is the power of Amunah. You know, I started reading the, this book, Garden of Amunah. I know many people have it and have read it. It's very popular. And um, in the beginning, it's so great. He says, you know, something like, he, he goes through all of life's problems. And after he ticks off each one of life's problems, he says, you know how to solve that problem? Amunah! You know how to solve that problem? Amunah! You know how to solve that problem? Amunah! You see, what, what happens to us psychologically? And we, we can uh, start to wrap it up with this. this, this um, see, what happens is, is that uh, God seems so hidden. God seems so hidden that it's like he's not there. That's how we, that's how we experience it. It's like he's not there. And then what happens is this really um, this really subtle, subtle but awful thing, which is is that instead of me instead of instead of the real reality, the truth, which is God filling the world and God being so exalted and above and present and watchful, and everything like this. What happens is is that it all kind of shrinks down. And God becomes very, 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 very small. And it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks so that God is this little thing in front of us. This little idea in front of us. 
And we feel as though, at that moment, as though we're carrying God. You know, it's sort of like... And then there's this dissonance, this spiritual and emotional dissonance that happens to us. Because we go, why am I doing this? You know, why am I carrying this idea of God? Right? Because... Why do I have to do that? And what we've done through constricted, this is what the Hasidim call constricted consciousness. Through, con- through constricted, constricted consciousness and through sadness. This is why sadness is so evil, literally evil. Why sadness is so evil, because it shrinks God down and it makes God so small, <laughs> is, that, is that we forget that we that God still is exalted. <laughs> and that God still fills the entire world. And that still God is beyond, 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 beyond. And that God is keeping the world going even as we imagine Him to be so small and right inside of us and that we're carrying God. In other words, there's this phrase that came to me and I uh, just can't get out of my head, which is the arrogance of sadness. It's such arrogance, and it's not intentional. It's not, it's not coming from an arrogant place. It's, just, it's a byproduct of constricted consciousness and of sadness. But it is arrogance because we've forgotten about God. And we've made him tiny in front of us. And he's now a brick around our neck instead of the true reality of the one who is animating the world and animating us. So how do we get out of that? Well, simcha, right? Once you rejoice and you're happy and things like this, you know, then you kind of snap back to it. Um, you know, I, I know that I was away from the, the happy minion for uh, a bunch of davening and... Uh, you know, when I when I came back to it, I, I, I realized it's it's you know it's not just nice and everything like this. It's ne- I, for me. I'm speaking personally. It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary because the world is constantly shrinking God. Everything about the world is shrinking God all the time, and it's if you're not in touch with the the exaltation of the real nature of reality, then, then it's, it's, a tough, it's, a, it's a tough journey getting through life. It's tough. It's tough. Sometimes even with that, it's still tough. But without it, I don't know how you can do it. So, so everyone's got their own version of that. Um, but uh, but but the main thing is for us to allow ourselves to understand that we're mining the future. You know, I said at the uh, at the Seder table. I was just talking with one of the people at the Seder table and I was telling them, you've got to ask questions. You've got to ask questions. Every question that you ask is eternal life tonight. You know? I said, imagine you're in a mine and you're digging and you're digging for gold. You're digging for gold. You're digging, 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 digging. And then all of a sudden you find one thick seam of gold. Right? At that moment, would you turn around and walk away? No, you've been working so hard. You're in front of this seam of gold. You're going to dig out all the gold. I said, this night, this night, every question that you ask, you're digging gold. And you're going to have that for all of eternity. Today is gold. Tomorrow is gold. The day after tomorrow is gold. The day after that is gold. Look Forward. Look forward. Direct yourself to the future. 
That's where the work is to be done. Don't live in yesterday. It's a jail. It's a jail cell. Don't walk backwards through life just looking at yesterday and the day before. You know? It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. Because you're going to be living in, in a realm of imagination. And you're going to have jail cells and bars and locks around you that don't really exist. I'm always reminded of something that I read one time. Ralph Ellison, one of the great American authors of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Invisible Man, or Invisible Man. Um, was living in the South, in America, and racially speaking, uh, there were many more restrictions for black people in the South than there were in the North. And the, um, the most... Uh, free place for blacks in America was Harlem in New York City. That was the, that was like the best place. They had the most opportunities there, the most social freedom, and everything like this. And there was a famous period in American history called the Harlem Renaissance, where arts flourished and music flourished and all sorts of amazing things. So, Ralph Ellison was writing, and um, he spent a summer in New York. And he was just amazed at all the opportunities that he had that he didn't have down south. And he asked himself the following question. He said, in retrospect, I wonder if there are certain things that I didn't do, not because I wasn't allowed to do them, but because I didn't even imagine they were permitted to me. Had I done them, had I tried them, I would have been successful and the doors would have been open to me. But I was so conditioned by my mental and emotional and life experiences of servitude that I didn't even venture to imagine that such things were possible. So that's, that's us. This is us. This is us. This is us when we walk through life and put yesterday on tomorrow. Imagine, you're standing in front of that seam of gold. That's right now. So let's just dig, 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 till we get all the way through and open up that last, that last gate, that last Leil Shemurim for all of us, for the redemption for all of us. Yeah. Yeah.